You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sarah Collenbrander, and I'm the Director of the Climate and Sustainability Program here at ODI. ODI is delighted to be convening today's discussion on the negotiator's perspective, charting new paths for climate and trade. This discussion is part of Climax Trade, a cycle of critical discussions on climate, trade and development policy led by ODI. We aim to bring together specialists within these fields to evaluate and identify evidence-based triple win policy outcomes in advance of COP26, the 26th session of the Conference of Parties on Climate Change. This is a timely discussion during the UN General Assembly and Climate Week in New York City, ahead of the next year building momentum towards COP26. The negotiations for COP26 were always going to be tough, but the need to secure more ambitious, nationally determined commitments now comes at a time of profound economic turmoil within the global economy due to COVID-19 and the associated lockdowns. On the one hand, there are concerns that efforts to address climate change will receive less priority as discussions to reboot economies and create jobs dominate. On the other hand, efforts to build back better have the potential to address both climate and trade-related vulnerabilities. International trade has a powerful role to play in both development and climate mitigation. But divergences between a climate, trade and development communities must be bridged. Today, we bring together climate and trade negotiators in order to discuss what's on the negotiating table at COP26, the trade-related implications, and how development-aligned outcomes can be secured. A more sustainable global growth trajectory must be underpinned by strengthened international commitments within both the climate and the trade spheres. How can developing countries' trade and development trajectories be secured? within the transition to net zero emissions by 2050? What are the divergences and how can these be reconciled? To discuss these issues, we have an outstanding lineup today. We are very grateful to have His Excellency, the Honorable Mr. Sonam P. Wangdi, Chair of the Least Developed Countries Negotiating Bloc at the UNFCCC from the Kingdom of Bhutan, His Excellency will be joining us today to share some of the top issues with respect to the least developed countries within the climate change negotiations. These are, of course, the countries that have contributed the least to the climate emergency that looms over us today, but which will suffer the most severe consequences unless we are able to secure far more ambitious commitments from the major emitters at COP26. We are also delighted that His Excellency Chad Blackman, Ambassador and Permanent Representative of Barbados to the World Trade Organization and Chair of the WTO Committee on Trade and the Environment, has joined us today to share his perspectives. Global trade is undergoing substantial turmoil, and so too is the WTO as an institution. However, the Committee for Trade and the Environment, currently chaired by Ambassador Blackman, is working hard to secure momentum. We are very lucky to have Archie Young with us today as well, the UK lead climate negotiator for COP26, who is committed to securing a successful outcome for all. Thank you, Archie, for joining us today. 
We're looking forward to hearing your thoughts on how best to ratchet up ambition at this critical global moment. And we'll kick off the discussion by interrogating you first. Finally, we will hear from Dr. Jodie Keane, a senior research fellow at ODI, who will be presenting some of her most recent research regarding some of the outstanding issues from COP26 and the challenges faced by both the climate and trade regimes that need to be overcome in these turbulent times. We will have opportunities for audience Q&A, so please post your questions in the event chat just below the video live stream on your page, and we will do our best to answer all your questions. Please also feel free to get involved on Twitter using the hashtag ClimaxTrade, the hashtag ClimateWeekNYC, and tagging at ODIDev. Firstly, Archie, lead UK COP26 negotiator, I'd like to turn to you. The UK faces the challenging task of securing more ambitious emission redu reduction targets within the context of a global pandemic and resulting economic downturn. How are diplomatic efforts being channeled to secure these? Sorry, Archie, you're on mute, if you wouldn't mind unmuting yourself. Thank you very much. Must have double clicked. Apologies. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, uh, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much to ODI for the invitation. Uh, and I look forward to a, a discussion on what's a fascinating topic about the interrelation between these issues. Um, as you say, yes, the global pandemic and the economic downturn do present a very challenging context for COP26 preparations. But first and foremost, um, obviously, it's a global health tragedy that has affected all of us, our friends, our families. Um, so before talking about COP26, I think it's appropriate to express my sympathy and solidarity to all those suffering from its multiple impacts. Um, climate change, though, is obviously also having multiple impacts on lives and livelihoods. And that's why we in the UK, as the incoming presidency for COP26, have been clear that the postponement of COP26, necessary, inevitable given the circumstances, does not mean the postponement of climate action. And when we were consulting and, and discussing with partners about the possibility of postponement several months ago, that was one of the clearest messages that came through from our discussions with particularly um, the small island developing states and also the least developed countries. It was their focus on 2020 as a year of action, on the need to make sure that that action continues and that momentum continues. So we are continuing to encourage action and ambition at all levels, all sectors around the world. And we're also providing direct support to facilitate the transition uh, and also support for countries to develop their new plans. Um, I think it's maybe helpful if we situate the COP in terms of the Paris cycle and where we are in the process in that, uh, and forgive me, many of you will already be very experts on this, but the Paris Agreement and its implementing decision set a very clear expectation that countries will update their emission reduction commitments, their nationally determined contributions by 2020 and update them every five years, reflecting the highest possible ambition. So with that as our starting point, we are using all of our diplomatic machinery both to accelerate real world climate action and also to encourage those new plans. And not just new NDCs, but also new commitments to, um, to net zero, new long-term strategies, new adaptation plans, new finance commitments. 
And we're doing so through the whole of uh, the government machinery. So from the very top of government through to the COP26 units, including myself, our climate envoy, our four regional climate ambassadors, the foreign secretary's climate envoy, and the whole UK diplomatic network. Indeed, all of our ambassadors and high commissioners around the world have a personal objective on climate change. Um, but uh, having been a diplomat for many years, I know that there is a bit of um, skepticism sometimes about diplomatic conversations. And uh, this is not just a series of polite encouragement uh, on government ministries. And this is about engaging with civil society, with business, with um, actors from all walks of life and all communities to really encourage action at all levels and demonstrate what is possible. This is not just a government to government conversation. We have our five campaigns that we're, we're pushing on adaptation and resilience, on finance, on energy transition, on nature and on transportation, which I think can go beyond that government conversation to really catalyze and drive real world action. Um, and there are so many statistics of uh, the costs of solar PV falling 82% in the last decade, for example, which show that actually the world has moved on. So now is the time to come up with those new plans. But in having those conversations, we also have to be sensitive to the inevitable impacts that COVID is having. Um, and that's both on the practical capacity of governments to do that analysis and consult properly, given the tough choices on, uh, that this can involve, but also on um, the, uh, the economic decisions that countries face. And you, you alluded to this, Sarah, as well. This is one of those turning points, one of those moments where governments around the world um, they need to re-stimulate their economies. They need to build, build back. And we are faced with a choice. This is an unforeseen scale of potential stimulus. And that is why we are working so hard to um, uh, drive that global conversation on the green recovery. We are doing our own part in the UK in terms of um, you know, how we are making sure that we build back better. But we're also really trying to facilitate and, and stimulate that global conversation on what that looks like. And that isn't just for this year. This is um, for this year, 2020 year of action, but also next year when we will have the G7 presidency and Italy, our COP partners, will have the G20 presidency. And we see all of that as being a coherent uh, and multi-pronged approach, if you like, to champion a clean, inclusive and resilient global recovery uh, with climate change front and centre of the uh, post-COVID debate. Thank you. Thank you very much, Archie, for, for that overview. I certainly think the UK should be commended for the huge progress it's made domestically in reducing emissions. For those of you on the line who, who can't pick it up, I have an Australian accent, so I come from a country that is perhaps less of an international leader on climate change. Uh, and so it's a great privilege to be in London at the centre of such exciting uh, climate diplomacy. Uh, Archie, you were kind enough to identify five broad areas where the UK and, and your co-hosts, the Italians, Italian government, are, are focusing on for COP26. We'd love to hear your thoughts about how these different areas and the, and the primary objectives for COP26 might play out for international trade over the next few years. Sure, thank you. And I think it's worth saying, well, thank you, first of all, for the recognition of the UK's action. Um, uh, for those who don't know, we have reduced our emissions by over 40% since 1990. Um, and um, we were the first industrialized country to commit in legislation to net zero. We have our Climate Change Act, which has got five yearly carbon budgets. We've also, as part of that, five yearly climate risk assessments as well. Um, so 
we try to uh, um, be at the vanguard of global climate action, but we also recognize that climate action looks very different in, in, uh, in different parts of the world. And um, I hope we never come across as trying to say that we have got all the answers or we've always got it right. And actually conversations like this can um, be valuable in, in hearing how it looks from different perspectives. Um, you mentioned our five campaigns. Those are absolutely part of our priorities for COP26, but I think um, I'd situate them in, in terms of the broader context of if, if we're really to drive progress and drive climate action at COP26, we need to make progress on several fronts. Um, we need to make significant material progress towards the goal of the convention and the Paris Agreement objectives. Uh, the Paris Agreement, Article 2, uh, has very clear objectives on reducing emissions, on adaptation, and on the support, finance, capacity, technology, etc., to achieve that. And when we talk about ambition, I think it's important to be aware that we, we're really talking about ambition across all of those fronts. Um, we need to do that in a way which is as inclusive as possible. And that's inclusive of all parties, of all issues, no issue left behind, but also really inclusive in terms of ensuring that the voices of historically marginalized groups are properly included. And we have some really fantastic work going on multilaterally on action on climate empowerment, on the gender action plan, uh, which we are really uh, partic participating heavily in. But what does that look like when it comes to um, progress? And I think, I mean, from my perspective as, as the lead negotiator, I focus first on the negotiations and I think we need to work towards a balanced and credible outcome uh, across the different areas of the negotiations. That's both those which has been mentioned have been uh, carried over from previous COPs unresolved, but also those which were meant for this year, uh, as well as looking ahead. How can we make sure that the system is, is really um, uh, driving progress in the way we would all expect, but also on the campaigns and also the work of the high-level champions to galvanize business and other non-state actors. And they're pushing a, a really fantastic um, initiative uh, called the Race to Zero. And I think we're going to see a lot more about that over the coming months. Um, how is that related to international trade? Now, uh, of course, we have many experts, I'm sure, in the audience who have written um, theses and books on the interrelationship between uh, global systems on trade and climate. So I won't pretend to um, uh, to, to go into that in, in too much uh, detail, but obviously they are they can be mutually supportive. I mean, to state the obvious, functioning global trade can help deliver the goals of the Paris Agreement, removing barriers, stimulating investment and innovation. Likewise, climate action can help preserve the ecosystems, the biodiversity, the natural resources that underpin um, economic activity and trade. Uh, there can also, of course, be tensions and less positive parallels. Uh, one that I would highlight in terms of those parallels is the unequal impacts sometimes of action or lack of action uh, on these issues, with the poorest and the most vulnerable being the hardest hit when things don't function well. And that's why I made the point earlier about inclusion and why it's such a uh, so valuable that we have the panelists that we have here today um, to, to get that broad range of perspectives. Um, obviously, trade and climate are governed by separate multilateral systems, but I'll just highlight a few specific areas of overlap. Um, firstly, there is how we as the UK can promote climate and environmental action through our trade policy. And on that, I'd point to a few examples. So 
We have named climate and environment as one of our multilateral trade objectives. You'll see them in our FTA negotiating objectives too. We've reduced tariffs on 100 green products, the so-called green 100, and we're encouraging conversations like this. I think, in fact, next week we are hosting an event uh, on um, how multilateral trade policy can contribute to the sustainability and green recovery agenda as part of Geneva Trade Week. So it's almost a mirror image of this conversation with Ambassador Blackman uh, speaking at the plenary of that too. And then secondly, I think there's how we can promote sustainable trade through our COP plans. Uh, and um, there are many ways in which trade can appear in the negotiations and in the, the broader discussions, but I'd point to a couple of examples from our campaigns. The first is on zero emission vehicles. Um, now, as you know, most global markets, they set some form of standard for access to that market. And through our transport campaign, we're trying to align those standards with the speed of transition required. And I think that's a good example of trade, not as some hypothetical lever, not a negotiation, but a set of practical decisions by jurisdictions in order to help them meet their goals. And then the second area I'd point to is on supply chains in the nature campaign. You may have seen that as the UK, we're consulting on how to make sure that commodities we import don't contribute to deforestation. I'm aware that this is um, a sensitive topic because uh, carbon footprint to one can be the livelihoods to others. So it really needs that global conversation about how we can together promote development, jobs, exports. And in that light, we're holding campaign dialogues on sustainable land use and commodity trade uh, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, and in Africa. Thank you very much, Archie. I will stop there. Um, but I look forward to hearing the views of others. So, thank it you. sounds like a great set of events. Uh, I, I'm guessing most of them are going to be virtual, thereby keeping all of our carbon footprints that little bit lower still. So uh, we look forward to seeing some of the ideas and outcomes of those of those different discussions. I guess Ambassador Blackman, I Archie mentioned that some of us have been in the trade world for a very long time, and you're perhaps one of the best examples of that, representing Barbados for many years now to the WTO, UNCTAD, and other forums. We would love to hear from you how seriously you find WTO members are now taking the environment in their trade talks and, and how that's evolved over recent times since you've been participating. Well, let me say thank you very much for um, to you for putting on the panel and also for the question. Uh, with regards to members in the WTO at this current point in time, I, I can't say that members are taking the, the trade and environment agenda particularly serious. And this was even before COVID-19. Um, we are in a global situation where a number of countries, small island developing states, uh, landlocked, uh, large economies, developed economies, developing economies, a whole host of nations are grappling with issues of an environmental nature. These include issues relative to climate change, uh, but there are, there are also many opportunities within that framework of the environment agenda. And I think it's that linkage between the challenges and the opportunities that's driving the agenda, particularly in the WTO, for members to address how do we move forward and take the sustainability aspect of it as well um, into issues of trade and trade policy. Now, I would have touched just now, for example, on uh, the opportunities. I always say where possible is that we should never waste a good crisis. And by that, I mean, let's look at COVID-19. 
in the context of climate change. Uh, as Archie would have mentioned, cli climate change uh, and the debate on climate change has been going on for a very long time. But I think where we are in the world now, particularly in the WTO's membership, COVID-19 has presented us with, if not the most uh, unique opportunity and time to really drive the, the agenda on sustainability and how do we ensure that we rebuild a global economy um, that is sustainable? Because let's face it, the world needs to have growth. Trade is a, a tool which will allow for countries, both developed and developing, um, to advance their interest in ensuring their populations um, can have a greater level of prosperity. However, and a big however, we have to ensure that whilst we're doing so, um, particularly now in the advent of COVID-19, that it is done in a sustainable way. So let's look at the link between health and the environment. Now we've seen the need over the last five, six months for the need for masks. Everyone needs to use a mask at some point um, and has come as a result of the uh, pandemic. What countries are seeing, and particularly countries in the WTO, they've raised it as well, is that notwithstanding that there is the need for the um, protective equipment, sadly, many of the, the equipment that they're now using and the materials used are now ending up in the landfills, and the beaches, etc. So therefore the question then, then becomes, how do we balance the need for providing equipment in, in circumstances of pandemics, whilst ensuring that the environment is not compromised? Herein then lies an opportunity for the global private sector to ensure that they can still create uh, goods and services that are in demand and that are necessary, particularly in such an environment, but also that does not compromise the environment. And I think that message has to be sent out very clearly that the idea that growth and, and finance and uh, prosperity are at variance to the environment, it is not true. There are lots of opportunities inherently uh, built into the tool, but a level of creativity Research and development has to be married together in order to take that forward. Um, and countries, I must say, are actually looking forward to the ministerial uh, coming next year in Kazakhstan, where that as the highest uh, aspect of the organization, ministers from around the world, will be coming to look at some of the issues member states are facing and want to address relative to the climate uh, and trade and environment agenda. Now, similarly, my country, Barbados, um, will be hosting UNCTAD 15 uh, in Barbados in April next year. And to give those of you some context of what that would mean, UNCTAD has within the mandate of the entire United Nations system as the organization that focuses on trade and development. And there are a number of issues relative to the environment agenda uh, and the trade agenda that will be discussed there. And again, when you look at WTO as, as it were, the, the world's chief regulator of trade, I like to see UNCTAD, or I like to describe UNCTAD as the moral conscience of trade. How do we get countries to see trade through a development lens? How do we get member states to ensure that their policies are geared towards greater harmony across the multilateral system? And I think the pandemic, as I said, has really presented us with a unique opportunity to relook how the global economy is structured uh, secondly, how do we ensure that the sustainability agenda is not uh, done in silos? Because there are lots of institutions, lots of conferences, which treat to the issue of climate change, the environment and trade.
but there has to be a very comprehensive uh, global framework, particularly now, given all the vulnerabilities that we've seen, to ensure that as we go forward, there's a streamlined, very clear uh, process, actionable uh, tasks to ensure that we get it right. I saw a report only this morning, um, which said that notwithstanding the little gains that we've made during the COVID-19 in terms of the environment being able to breathe, we're still not uh, getting enough in terms of meeting the targets to ensure that the temperatures are at the levels that are sustainable. This is not good. Um, and we therefore have to redouble or perhaps triple our efforts within the multilateral system to ensure that we can move forward. So these are some of the things that the governments um, in the WTO are advancing right now. Issues relative to plastics pollution is very critical. Issues relative to the circular economy and how do we get countries to reuse their, their goods after they're, they're used to ensure that there's um, taking those goods forward and creating other products. That is critical. But what we've seen thus far is that many of the countries who participate in the circular economy are the developed counterparts. The developing world therefore have um, a unique opportunity in, in such. However, the capacity building constraints that would allow for small states or developing states or lived developed states has to be therefore enhanced. So there are a number of different conversations taking place in Geneva and further afield, particularly um, in, in the CTEs um, with, with regards to these things. So I'm optimistic and member states are optimistic, but we have to get it done. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, and I'm, I, I really liked your framing there of, on the one hand, the opportunities of a, of a more sustainable world and the challenges of moving towards that in these particularly turbulent times. I'm going to just briefly ask you to follow up on one particular point there, which is to say, one of the challenges that the global trade community are facing at this time are the complex, the current issues within the WTO itself. Uh, given that, no one wants trade-related environmental issues to end up at the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism. It'd be great to hear from you just in a couple of minutes what areas you consider the most pressing to resolve so that we don't end up in that forum. No, no, I, I think um, given where we are right now, Again, I'm sorry for having to labor the point of COVID, 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 but again, it has reshaped and to my mind will reshape a lot of the things that we do in terms of our perspectives going forward. Um, I think priority number one has to be continued dialogue, but dialogue with the objective of implementation. Um, once member states can have a, a clearer picture as to where each other's uh, interests, capacities are, then we can have that conversation in terms of how do we move to the next step. Um, I want to touch again on the issue of uh, the circular economy, tying it, therefore, with also the how do we build back stronger and better. No country in the world, bar none, uh, is not in, in the business of ensuring that there's growth for their populations. By and large, that's driven by their private sector interests. The, the question, therefore, becomes, we have to, how do we get our private sector to understand even further the need for um, creating excellent, high-quality goods and services that's sustainable, that's climate-friendly, that does not uh, increase the, the, the carbon footprint as well. But it will take time. And therefore, the issue relative to financing of these initiatives will be absolutely critical because there are a lot of private sector companies across the world, large and small, who uh, hitherto have models of, um, um, of production that are not in line with what we would want. 
but they are the opportunities. So therefore, the international financial sector has to come on board to facilitate that bridge in order um, for there to be uh, what, what we're talking about. So in, in respect to what you've asked, how, how do we ensure that uh, countries uh, are not brought, for example, before um, such a body? We have to ensure that each country has the capacity to do so, particularly the developing countries, because it would be against the spirit of the organization for countries to be penalized in circumstances where they're not able to have the capacity to, to reach the objective that we would all want. Um, and perhaps you may want to set a time in the future, maybe a uh, medium-term strategy for this sort of thinking. Um, but I, I must say, for, for further context, the Trade and Environment Committee, unlike many other committees in the organization of WTO, is not a negotiating committee. Um, there's lots of dialogue, and it serves, therefore, as a platform for member states to uh, advance the agenda. But institutions like UNEP um, play a very critical role uh, in ensuring that member states also have a very clear, well-defined strategy of how to achieve these things and how not to end up in the situation that you would have alluded to. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Uh, it was it was helpful to hear your emphasis on the importance of getting the financing arrangements right, including mobilising private finance and deepening financial markets in, in key countries. I think that's one of the key themes the UK government has emphasised and is working very hard to support in, in major emerging economies. And of course, the least developed countries negotiating bloc have been very powerful advocates for ensuring equitable financing arrangements behind the climate discussions uh, at, at, the, at previous COPs and I, I think at this COP as well. So I'm going to turn to you, His Excellency, the Honourable Mr. Mr. Wang Di, to, to ask you to illuminate some of these questions from the perspective of the least developed countries bloc. And in particular, what do you see as the top issues at the intersections of the climate and trade agenda that, that you'd like to move forward at, at COP26 and in the trade forums as well? Madam Chair, <clears throat> Ambassador Blackman, uh, Archie, Judy, distinguished participants, <clears throat> it is my pleasure to uh, participate in this ODI event today. I represent the LDCs, and as mentioned, uh, the LDCs are the most vulnerable group, a set of countries that have done the least to cause <clears throat> climate change, but are suffering the most. Uh, in terms of uh, the uh, questions, top issues, uh, and that too uh, at intersection between climate and trade agenda, uh, I would like to look at that uh, through two lenses. One uh, is uh, the uh, pending unresolved work <clears throat> at the technical level at the COP26 now, the, at the negotiations, unresolved at COP25. And then the other is uh, more to do with the implementation of the Paris Agreement, and it is uh, more political issues. To start with the unresolved issues of uh, COP25, <clears throat> and that also the, the intersection issues, so I'm not going getting into all the issues. Uh, the the top one there would be the uh, what we call the Article Six issues, uh, cooperative approaches, uh, basically the carbon trade uh, <clears throat> rather market. Uh, 
the rule book for that uh, could not be finalized. And uh, we, we have a lot of work to do there, <clears throat> especially in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the definitions, uh, the, the, what we call the ITMOS uh, internationally <clears throat> traded uh, mitigation outcomes under, both, uh, under two articles, Article 6.2 and Article 6.4. The accounting for that, uh, uh, then the uh, share of the proceeds uh, for adaptation work, especially for the LDCs, uh, <clears throat> and also their issues uh, uh, like uh, carryover of the uh, Kyoto Protocol carbon credits, uh, which, which are these are new issues which are which have cropped into the negotiations. Uh, so we we have uh, quite a lot of issues uh, under this uh, carbon uh, <clears throat> trade market. Uh, a lot of uh, let's say <clears throat> issues to do with also vested interests there. Uh, the LDC countries are for environmental environmental integrity, uh, primarily because we are the most effective. So we've been very progressive on this front. Uh, so that is uh, probably at the intersection, and this is uh, about carbon trading, the major one. Uh, the other one is uh, what we call under the enhanced transparency uh, framework. Uh, it's about uh, reporting framework, and these uh, go across all the thematic areas, whether it is uh, whether Article 6, whether it's NDC, whether it is uh, greenhouse gases, uh, whether it is the uh, biennial update, uh, so it cuts across all uh, the thematic areas, and this is one, uh, the other areas, or whether it is finance, uh, which is also a very uh, central issue. <clears throat> the finance part, I will also touch. Finance also falls under the, the let's say, uh, technical negotiation in the sense of uh, we uh, there is a commitment uh, to deliver $100 billion by 2020, but uh, there, there are currently... Uh, no agreement how to assess that. And there's also an agreement to start work on the new quantified goal because the requirements are a lot more than 100 billion. The LDCs alone need about 100 billion as of now. <clears throat> so uh, th that is the finance part. Now, if you go to the, the political side and uh, the, the, uh, the other lens in terms of uh, 2020 being the year of implementation of the Paris Agreement, now here we are talking about uh, it's about uh, ambition uh, it's about uh, getting countries to submit uh, new and updated uh, ndcs because at the current level the ipcc 1.5 degree report made it very clear that uh, by 2030 if you are unable to reduce more than 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions uh, we are not going to be on track for this 1.5 degree so we need to, in fact, uh, have uh, dramatic, transformative uh, changes, reductions in the next uh, 10 years or so. So that is why it is very important. And we are also asking for the what we call the, <clears throat> the long-term uh, emission plans of the different LTS. Uh, so this, this uh, is uh, the most important. And we believe that uh, the LDCs have been advocating, especially to the big emitters that uh, if uh, ambition uh, level is not picked up, and it was even raised at the UN Secretary General's uh, summit last year in September, and, uh, and we feel that momentum is on, not only LDCs, the AOSs, the small island countries who are in fact going to be 
probably most affected with sea level rise. So we are on the board for that. And uh, <clears throat> even at uh, this political level, I believe uh, finance is key, key issue. Without finance, uh, most of these NDCs, uh, the uh, adaptation plans, NAPs that uh, even the LDCs have uh, uh, formulated, we are not going to be going to be able to implement that on the ground for want of these resources. Finance is a key, uh, without any doubt. Uh, without finance, we would not be able to move forward. And of course, related to that is uh, things like uh, also technology, capacity building. Uh, these are important. Uh, but uh, for us, the whole world, uh, all the nations have to come together because we have the shared goal in terms of uh, the uh, reductions, the emission reductions we have to achieve in the next uh, 10 years is tremendous. And uh, we know that uh, we have a, a, a convention, an international multilateral agreement. Even then, it is quite difficult. But with the COVID, uh, previous speakers have kept mentioning, in fact, uh, even Ambassador Blackman, <clears throat> COVID recovery uh, gives us that opportunity now uh, to innovate, uh, to build back better. And uh, it is my hope that... Uh, all the countries around the world would take that cue and move forward in terms of uh, building back better, in terms of going towards uh, low emission, climate resilient, sustainable economies. Thank you. I'll stop here. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. I'm delighted to hear you reference the IPCC report when that was published in 2018. I think those numbers really shocked and terrified everyone and galvanized a new level of action, obviously fueled further by the protests last year, uh, particularly by, by young people turning out during the student the school strikes. Just a, a quick reminder for those who don't have the numbers at their fingertips. Uh, according to the IPCC, if we hit a two degree rise at the end of the century, that will mean an additional 270 million additional people will face water shortages every year. 420 million additional people will be exposed to extreme heat and 330 million will suffer nutrition risks. Uh, that's relative to a 1.5 degree scenario. So half a degree really does make a, a world of difference. It's also worth, uh, as, as His Excellency just, just alluded to, that we're actually on track to a three degree rise at the moment. And so I think the conversation at that point goes well beyond the impacts on our supply chains to much more profound questions about our, our existence uh, for, for certain nations and, and communities. Uh, His Excellency, I, I have one follow-up question for you. Speaking speaking of the global impacts that are likely to be borne disproportionately by the least developed countries, um, the LDCs have actually weathered many aspects of the pandemic very well relative to, to certain other countries. But of course, the, the human toll of COVID comes with a terrible economic toll that's reinforced many of your economic vulnerabilities. Export diversification is, is something that has been mooted to support the least developed countries to reduce some of these economic vulnerabilities. We'd love to hear from you how the UNFCCC could work more effectively with the WTO, particularly to support the least developed countries across, across the climate and trade pillars as they work towards net zero emissions and a climate resilient future. Thank you, Madam Chair. <clears throat> Uh, it is without any doubt uh, that the LDCs are suffering uh, two, uh, in fact, uh, emergencies or disasters, the climate and COVID. And uh, between the two, I think uh, 
it, it, has, it has been very, very difficult uh, for the LDCs uh, in terms of uh, getting their, uh, rather forget the economies, even uh, in terms of uh, supporting their uh, citizens. So this is this is how uh, the uh, situation is at the moment, uh, very dire situation across the world. And of course, uh, most are getting into uh, formulating the recovery plans, uh, which hopefully uh, will uh, ha be on this uh, climate resilient green pathways. For LDCs, definitely it is on that. But uh, for LDCs, it is about uh, whether they are takers, even if you get on, onto that. Now, in terms of how uh, the UNFCCC can support I believe that I've often heard uh, in many meetings uh, that um, most of us, us, in fact, the international agencies, even within the climate, we have biodiversity, we have we have uh, ozone, and we have uh, climate change. But we, we are quite separate. We have our separate corps, and so we, we are uh, pretty much in silos. And likewise, uh, I think, uh, given that trade and environment, it is... Uh, rather much further apart you know this uh, this kind of compartmental system does exist so it is in fact uh, I, I think it's very important even in, fa in fact as the ldc group sometimes uh, we have in fact three groups we have the ldc uh, bond that is the unf triple c we have a ldc group then we have the ldc group at uh, new york which is uh, whether it is the development group or they all, all, always sometimes say the global group. And then we have the LDC group at uh, Geneva, the, the WTO group. So you can see how <clears throat> well, rather uh, in terms of the coordination, how uh, unconnected it is. So we have been, in fact, during uh, our uh, chairmanship, Bhutan has been trying to connect, in fact, between uh, uh, the, uh, the, the New York and uh, Bonn, and we hopefully we will also connect with uh, with the Geneva LDC uh, uh, group. I believe uh, UNFCCC uh, needs to, in fact, uh, do this advocacy. In in fact, uh, the UN per se, I think, needs to do do that. I think we needs to we need to move towards uh, common shared goals, uh, which are I think it's uh, pretty well known now. It's uh, the catchwords are low carbon, climate resilient, and sustainable economies. So these are, I, I think, I think the the goals, and uh, all of us, I think, we need uh, to work towards those goals, irrespective of uh, our categorization, whether it's in the trade, whether it's in environment, whether it is uh, uh, in the human rights or elsewhere. <clears throat> we need to and. Uh, Thank you very much, His Excellency. Uh, I might I might ask you to wrap up then just because we have a couple of questions that are going to pick up on this point. And so I want to prompt you specifically with those questions from the audience once we've had a chance to hear from Jody. Um, but it is it is intriguing to know that even within the LDC negotiating block that different there are different groups working in New York, Bonn and Geneva on each of these issues. And there's opportunities for greater coordination and support across across those, let alone on a much more complex global landscape again. Uh, Jody, uh, sorry, Dr. Keane, uh, transparency is a, is a big issue within the UNFCCC. Uh, the negotiations underpinning many of the pillars, including finance and so on, happen very much uh, behind, door, behind closed doors. 
uh, and similarly within the WTO. Looking ahead, why and how should both institutions work together to address some of the, the issues that the previous panellists have flagged? Thank you very much, um, Sarah, for the introduction. And let me just extend my sincere thanks and appreciation to the excellencies and um, Archie for joining us um, this afternoon. And of course, for you um, for chairing the session. I'll just take the two issues um, separately. Um, so I'll just talk a little bit about the specific issue of transparency within the WTO and try and draw out some of the lessons there for the UNFCCC, as well as vice versa. And then I think it's useful for us to kind of, you know, reflect on where we might be 10 years uh, from now and um, think about um, the type of uh, kind of institutional relationships that we need um, to, to help us achieve the level um, of ambition that the Paris Agreement has, has set out and that um, the UK um, seeks to secure at um, COP26. So just beginning with the WTO and the issue of transparency there, it is a key principle and uh, it stipulates that the, a country's trading policies and regulations should be clearly communicated um, to trading partners. So what this means in practice is that there's a system of notifications and there's a kind of detailed uh, review process that's undertaken during uh, trade policy reviews. And this provides an opportunity for other members, you know, to, to review uh, countries' trade policy and to ensure that it is in line uh, with the rules. So underpinning this system, you know, of, of notifications, uh, underpinning the system of transparency, of course, is trust and goodwill. And the, a key question uh, now that we the, the system is grappling with now is what happens when that breaks down? You know, what happens when countries don't communicate, don't communicate, when they don't notify? And what we've seen over the um, course of the WTO's history is that this non-compliance and you know, failure to notify other countries of specific policies, that has increased uh, over recent years. And one could even go so far as to say that it kind of underpins the current crisis, really, that the, the, and the kind of systemic issues um, that the WTO uh, confronts. The issues around subsidies, transparency of these, these policies, you know, this underpins what have been the kind of biggest trade wars that have been playing out over recent years between the US and China and the US and the EU. So these, this issue of transparency is, is really, really important. Um, and it's important because of the issues I've mentioned around subsidies in particular, and these are probably going to be one of the biggest trade issues that we will confront um, over coming years, given the scale of ambition you know, that countries are setting themselves to achieve net zero, um, you know, the level of ambition, the level of government support that, that's required. Um, I just quote the 2018 um, UNEP emissions gap report, which says that uh, we need to we need to multiply by a factor of three existing commitments if we're to hit that you know no more than two degree temperature rise. But if we want to stay within that 1.5 temperature rise, which as you mentioned, Sarah, is so so important, you know, given the extreme effects on extremely vulnerable groups of um, global society, you know, we need to increase the level of ambition by a factor of six. So this issue around 
subsidies and increasing demands for subsidies to support the transition required is likely to increase. It has the potential to exacerbate exa existing trade tensions, depending, of course, of how on how these policies are designed uh, and implemented. And it's just to suffice to say that, you know, the new WTO DG, when they come in, you know, will have quite a lot to, to, to grapple with. But it's this point around, you know, if countries don't notify, there's nothing there that can really, you know, um, there's no sanction. The WTO doesn't have a sanctioning mechanism. It has a dispute settlement which mechanism, which provides a form of compensation if producers are adversely affected. But there's no enforcement mechanism. And I think this is the key issue that the UNFCCC really confronts. Um, you know, as countries are moving towards um, setting up this, this architecture around transparency, uh, there's been a lot of discussions recently, you know, trying to avoid language that is punitive and trying to, you know, encourage members to, you know, ensure that these principles of transparency will be adhered to. But inevitably, the UNFCCC, you know, is, is likely to face um, the similar issues uh, that the WTO um, itself faces now. So, I'm just going to ask if we could move to the next question then, just yeah. because we do have a lot of questions coming through from the audience and don't want to miss out any of them. Yeah. But I, I do have one more question from you, just to, for you, just to bring us back full circle to the original question posed to, to Archie. Uh, the UK lead negotiator on climate has identified for us some of the UK's priorities for, for COP26 and some of the UK's metrics for success. It'd be great to hear from you what what you think the trade related implications of of this success or or these priorities might look like Priority. you are very eloquent but you were on mute great okay yeah i think it's great that the uk has set out these five priorities because i think for the trade community it can help us to kind of broaden out the discussion around trade and climate from what has been a kind of narrow focus on border carbon adjustment measures you know there's a lot of discussion by trade economists trade lawyers looking at border carbon adjustments in particular but i think you know by focusing on those measures we're miss we're missing out on on the bigger picture um, so all of the issues around um, nature-based solutions, the issues around clean energy and this just transition, as well as adaptation uh, and resilience. Um, you know, some of the, I'll just pick up on a, a couple of the points um, and a couple of the priority areas. Um, first on adaptation and resilience. I think this, you know, this focus is obviously welcome, uh, given this, the, the climate emergency that we currently face. And COVID-19 has shown us, you know, what happens when big shocks happen. We've, we've learned a lot of lessons of what we want to avoid. And we're also learning lessons of what we want to ensure. So there's a lot of discussion around building resilience. And here I just would like to urge a bit of caution because there seems to be a kind of reinforcement of sim similar policy within the climate and trade spheres. And this is related to the shortening of global value chains. And, you know, we've written, we've developed some briefings on this because it might not, the shortening of global value chains is happening for different reasons within different sectors, but advocating it as a policy to enhance resilience, both to trade shocks and to climate shocks could be problematic. And it could also, um, you know, on-demand developmental objectives. So it's important that we open up and we broaden out this discussion and we avoid this walking down and getting 
you know, walking down this more protectionist route. And we focus on the broader COP26 agenda and the opportunities within this. Um, so just to pick up on the nature-based solutions, um, Archie's mentioned um, some of the points there and the um, uh, Honourable um, LDC chairs also mentioned all of the issues around carbon markets. I think that this, this priority area is obviously very welcome because it's trying to garner support for nature-based solutions, the protection, restoration and sustainable management of ecosystems. But there are still questions around which ecosystems are included. Um, for example, small island developing states, you know, urgently need, need solutions there. Um, and there's also issues around scale and how to kind of, you know, how to actualize uh, nature-based solutions at scale. In relation to trade policy, the UK seems to have aligned to some extent its trade policy with, you know, what it's trying to promote onto the nature-based solutions, given the recent moves that Archie mentioned um, with regards to um, fining firms that are importing commodities or products from deforested areas. But it's not clear how that policy might, how will that policy be reflected um, in the UK's bilateral trading relationships and, and FTAs? You know, how will it be enforced um, within those agreements? So it's coming back to that issue uh, around enforcement. And on clean energy, for example, you know, it's great that the UK is, is promoting this, um, but a, a recent study by the UK Trade Policy Observatory has pointed out that um, although the UK says that it doesn't have any fossil fuel subsidies, the EU says differently, the OECD also says differently. So there's a bit of disconnect between what, what you know, it's not just the UK, Italy's probably in the same position, many other countries in the same position, you know, trying to better align what countries are advocating for under climate compared to what their trade policy uh, instruments are doing. We really do need to start um, trying to create uh, more mutually um, supportive uh, regimes. I'll, I'll end there, Sarah, so we can move on to Q&A. Thank you very much, Jodie, and thank you to all our panellists for your insightful comments uh, with some, some shared reflections on the challenges that we're facing in the climate and trade forums and, and both a sense of opportunity in this really important year ahead, recognising that the world is coming from perhaps a, a more difficult place than it has been in a long time in terms of the turbulence of geopolitical relations, the, the human tragedy of COVID and the, the economic uncertainty that makes large-scale action uh, more difficult than it might have been a few years ago. We have a number of questions coming in from the audience. I'm going to start with a question for each of the speakers, um, starting off with uh, His Excellency Wang Di, because I, I did promise you a question picking up on the, the key points you were making in your presentation. Uh, this question is from, from Simon Maxwell uh, at ODI. Uh, actually, a lot of the questions are from Simon, but I'm going to try and share them around equitably among other audience members. Uh, so Your Excellency, uh, Simon tells us that traded emissions now account for 38% of the global total. Some countries and regions, including the European Union, are now planning to introduce border carbon adjustments, which will tax traded carbon, thereby ensuring that they're not allowing dirty industries to simply move overseas and continue supplying domestic markets. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the implications for developing countries, recognizing that developing countries have very different experiences in terms of the amount of carbon that they might trade and in their different economies and particularly to hear from you what you think um, developing country negotiators in the different blocks should be asking for with respect to border carbon adjustments. 
Uh, you're still on mute. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, in terms of this border carbon adjustment, uh, I, in fact, uh, I have again, uh, in terms of two two views on it. Uh, one is uh, in terms of uh, in terms of if it's if it's uh, if it's on products, I would say that uh, it is it is a little unfair because. Uh, if you talk about the EU, where they've been discussing this for quite some time, then it is uh, in some manner it makes the as it is the products from the LDCs and the developing world are not very competitive. So it will have this uh, impact where our products will not be competitive. Uh, on the and uh, we are the ones that, uh, in terms of uh, the emissions, uh, we emit the least. I believe LDCs. It's about. Uh, it's uh, per capita is about a quarter a kilo as against uh, five kilos in the developing world and uh, 10 kilos in the developed world. So this is this is the per capita. So it would be very unfair. Uh, on the other hand, uh, again, if you look at, I saw that as, as uh, they talked about the emissions, the territorial versus consumption. Uh, here also, it's uh, if you look at it uh, again, uh, we would see that uh, that uh, most of uh, the industries in developed world have gone uh, rather the dirty industries have moved to the developing world and as a result again uh, if you move to uh, the consumption tax it is uh, that way again uh, it is to the detriment uh, of uh, the developing ldcs and the developing world uh, so th that is how how i see it in terms of uh, the border adjustment, uh, <coughs> carbon border adjustment. Thank you very yeah, much, Wang Di. I'm talking about products, but if it is uh, as, uh, let's say, carbon uh, trade, the emission trading per se, but I don't think it is that we are talking about products. Yet. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Just for, for those who haven't read the question about territorial emissions, the numbers that Simon shared with us were, for example, in the UK, the share of imported emissions in the UK's total carbon footprint has risen from 15% in 1990 to 43% in 2016. So even though the UK's share of emissions reported under current measurements might be falling very fast, and that's due to major investments, particularly in the electricity grid, Nonetheless, the total level of emissions that each individual UK resident consumes does, has not changed significantly in that time. Um, and so that is a, a question of huge importance for, for global equity. Um, my, my next question is uh, from Harrow Van Asselt from, from SEI and I believe the University of East Finland, a very respected scholar in this space. And the, and the question is to you, Archie. Uh, how would the UK seek to move forward climate action through the WTO? And, and can you suggest anything more concrete beyond discussions in the Committee on Trade and Environment, uh, chaired by Ambassador Blackman? Thank you, um, and thank you for the question. Uh, this is gonna sound um, like I'm merely passing, but, but genuinely, I'd actually be more interested in Ambassador Blackman's view on this, uh, given his um, role in, in the WTO. Obviously, uh, as I set out earlier, we're considering various multilateral trade initiatives, environmental goods, services, 
themes, uh, whether we should pursue smaller plurilateral initiatives on trade, environment and climate change. I, I, I wouldn't limit our options purely to uh, the WTO, and I'm very aware of some of the historic um, challenges of doing so. Um, so I think we are open to um, views and suggestions as to actually what the opportunities are for bringing uh, those together. If I can um, just respond quickly on, on the, the point about territorial and consumption emissions, because I think that's a really important point that uh, Simon has made in terms of those numbers. Uh, and yes, our uh, consumption emissions have fallen faster than our production emissions. Um, but I think actually the very fact that the UK tries to measure its consumption emissions um, and uh, that we are taking action to try to make sure we are um, reducing our emissions footprint uh, broadly uh, is, is actually a positive sign in that direction. Also, since 1990, and actually the latest figures are from 2016, so we don't have the full uh, time period, but from 1990 to 2016, the UK's consumption emissions did reduce by 15% as well. So that is not as fast as our production emissions, but it is still a reduction um, of emissions, which is, I think, quite significant. Uh, and part of that is because, you know, range of actions, but it includes the fact that, um, in, you know, we have basically pretty much removed coal from our energy mix. In 2012, it was over 40% of our energy mix, and now it's one or 2%. Uh, and you've seen we've gone several weeks uh, with no coal power on the system for the first time in, you know, uh, over 100 years. So, uh, I, yes, there is more we can do on consumption um, footprint, uh, but uh, we are reducing emission on on all aspects of UK sectoral emissions. Thank you very Thanks. much, Archie. I, I stand corrected on the UK's consumption emissions. I, I think the building retrofit program and no doubt Glasgow's recent proliferation of vegan cafes have something to do with those falling, falling emissions. Uh, Ambassador Blackman, Archie invited you to comment on, on some of the other options that might be available in the WTO. And, and then I have a question from Judith Tyson in the audience. After you. Thank you. No, I just wanted some clarity as to what sort of options you're looking for. I mean, there, there are a wide uh, array of them. So just wanted to be clear. Well, I, I wish I knew. But uh, the, <laughs> so the question precisely is what are the options that might be available apart from the dialogue that you talked about in the Committee on Trade and Environment? So, so Jody mentioned before mm -hmm. to some of the, the mechanisms regarding sanctions and, and so on. Do you think those are viable in the WTO as it stands today? Or, or is it really, must we really focus on dialogue? Okay, no, I, I think, um, well, for starters, she is correct. There is no sanction uh, mechanism, as it were, um, for those sorts of issues. But it therefore brings us back to the earlier point that I would have made. There has to be uh, an inter-organizational mechanism um, for the, the countries to have this at the core, because this is not within the mandate of the WTO, but it doesn't stop other organizations and other institutions from doing so. Um, because hitherto, as I said, and I think Jody would have alluded to this, um, many of the institutions uh, act in silos, but this issue is affecting all constituents in the world, vis-a-vis -vis countries, um, and we all have a stake to play. So there has to now come in a very short period of time, um, a body or a series of bodies coming together with a mandate of ensuring that one implementation and accountability and further enforcement is now there. Um, because again, if, if, if we don't do that, um, if there's no sanction, there's no incentive to change behavior. Um, if I should use a criminal law principle, without the law um, to penalize um, theft, 
there's no incentive not to do it. I mean, people still do it, notwithstanding the law, but they know that if they're caught, there's a sanction. Equally, climate change ought to be seen in the same reality, not from a criminal perspective, but from the perspective that there has to be a very clear, well-defined uh, policy that's enforceable across the board that countries can be held accountable uh, for. Because the opposite is not tenable. Right? And I think that has to be to be there. So again, to answer your question, one, the WTO is not the, the organization with the mandate that can do that, but it therefore behoves us to have that inter-organizational structure to begin to unpack some of these issues. Thank you, and Ambassador. And I, I guess that leads us very nicely into, into the question from Judith Tyson, uh, who, who has quite a dismal outlook on, on the landscape. Judith says that she doesn't disagree that the ideal is international cooperation, but the realistic prospects of this have never been lower since in the post-war period. Is it time to think out of the box and have more radical and unilateral action? And I guess your recommendation that we look outside the WTO to instruments with more teeth would be a partial answer to that question? Most, most definitely, um, because the, the, the aspect, as I mentioned before, and I, and I think what's coming through very clearly from this panel, is that up to this point, hitherto, there has been one institution or two who may have uh, a mandate for some of the issues, but there's no global uh, structure where we can have these things being enforced on the borders. Um, the, the climate reality in terms of uh, resilience, for example, adaptation, as was mentioned, um, this may be, for example, an environmental issue, but it's also an issue, for example, that affects refugees, just to give an example. Okay, so therefore you have to get the organization who has a, a mandate relative to issues of refugees to have a conversation with the environmentalists and the trade specialists. And therefore it brings us back to that point again, that there has to be a globally well-oiled and coordinated mechanism that allows for uh, issues of the environment, but more, let's call it what it is, climate change and its impact, okay? To really be streamlined in everything that we do uh, across the institutions. And perhaps what you do is you divide up the, the, the tasks for these institutions, um, but each institution will have its clear um, niche in the execution of, of these things. Um, and now is the time for us to do so. There are a number of major global conferences coming up, COP uh, being one of them, that can allow for this to Thank happen. Thank you, Ambassador. Your, your final comment there reminded me of that saying, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the second best time is now. Uh, we, we were not successful in, in Copenhagen. We had some success in Paris and now Glasgow really needs to bend the curve very, very urgently. I, I'm going to turn to you, Jody, next with a, a question from an anonymous audience member asking about the role for free trade agreements on climate. Since we're now talking about doing things differently and, and the role of unilateral and bilateral action in, in aligning climate and trade agendas, what do, what do you think? Can FTAs like the ACCTS deliver at scale? And please explain for those of us who don't know, like myself, what ACCTS might stand for. Okay, yes. Um, so the, the ACCTS is the Agreement on Climate Change, Trade and Sustainability. And it's been led by um, a group of countries, um, including uh, New Zealand and Fiji, um, Iceland and Norway. And um, it's, an, it's an agreement that's trying to tackle some of these issues. It focuses on three main areas. Um, firstly, the um, abolition of fossil fuel 
um, subsidies, uh, harmful fossil fuel subsidies, um, guidelines to support um, eco-labeling, and also uh, the removal of tariffs on, on environmental goods. Um, I think that you know initiatives like the this this the agreement that I've just mentioned, um, which is uh, you know it's new, it's innovative, but it's clear that it could go further. And um, that's why I was picking up on the, the five priority areas that the, the UK, you know, is championing, championing at COP26. There are many other trade and climate change linkages that, that can be made. And um, so there's clearly scope for far more ambition. Um, but as always, even within FTAs, you also have the issues around compliance and what do you do when parties don't um, comply? So, you know, just hypothetically um, thinking, you know, the UK, should it wish to, you know, it's stated that it wishes to um, bolster the sustainable development um, provisions in its FTAs, um, that it wants climate change to be mentioned. But, you know, when the UK is negotiating with big players like the US that don't want climate change mentioned at all, you know, where does that leave the UK and what position is the UK in to, you know, ensure that those provisions are made? You know, that type of scenario, you know, you can be, you can be replicated if, you, if you're thinking about small island developing states, LDCs, it does come down to that negotiating clout. So, you know, there's scope for more ambition, more creativity, but, you know, within FDAs, you know, it tends to be best among a party of, of, of equals, um, shall I say. Most LDCs will rely on the generalised system of preferences. And there's certainly scope there for the UK to think more creatively, you know, when the, the current regime ends. The e it said that it will replicate the EU's approach, um, but the EU's GSP ends in 2023. You know, what could the UK do there to bolster, you know, those uh, incentives for um, better environmental outcomes, adherence to climate change policies. For example, will the initiative on deforested products, how will that feature within that sort of mechanism? So yes, I think that there's plenty of scope, but we also have to be um, realistic because you know this is why the multilateral trading system is so important for small, poor, vulnerable economies. It's that multilaterally agreed framework of rules that helps to kind of mitigate these big power um, asymmetries in, in negotiating uh, capacity. Thank, thank you, Jodie. And I guess speaking of, of power asymmetries, often there is an asymmetry between uh, global business and uh, national governments and their efforts to align uh, on, on climate goals. And there are those that are very aspirational on climate change in both the public and private sector. I, I guess, Archie, turning to you, we have a question from Myrie Dupair in the audience saying, we talk about governmental targets for net zero, but how are governments leveraging this on business and how does this play out for global supply chains? We'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure, thank you. And, and it's a great question uh, because the only way that we can ever hope to achieve net zero um, and it sounds like a trite soundbite, but it's actually, of course, true, is, you know, action by all. It's uh, businesses, it's individuals, it's civil society, it's communities, it's local governments, regional governments, as well as national government. Um, businesses have a huge role to play. And through our previous um, uh, long-term strategy, um, we set out a, a series of actions and we're continuing to work as to exactly how um, we can put in place the enabling policies, but also um, 
create the conditions uh, whereby businesses um, can feel empowered to go further and faster. I think that when I reflect to some of the conversations that I've had with business over the years in this field, um, a few years ago, it, and this is a, a, a kind of a, a big generalization, but it often felt as though it was governments that were really going further and trying to bring businesses with them. And actually, at times, it feels as though that balance is shifting, whereby businesses are now recognizing that, as was mentioned earlier, that there's, there's much less of a sense of a trade-off between sustainability and growth, that actually, you know, the sustainable solutions are the ones that are good for business, they're good for employee engagement. Um, yes, they're good for PR as well, but primarily, they're good for business. And I think now through the We Mean Business Coalition, they've now got over 1,300 businesses worth a quarter of the global economy committed uh, to significant actions and targets on climate. And there are various different initiatives that businesses can sign up to, science-based targets, We Mean Business and so on. Um, there was a nice anecdote that uh, one of the coordinating organizations now has to find a bigger PowerPoint because they've got so many logos now of businesses that are committing and actually, that's great. And we should celebrate that um, and recognize the differential role between what governments can do and what the private sector can do, but also what governments can do to support others through our public finance and also uh, what private investment can do if we align financial flows such that global financial uh, investment, global supply chains are encouraging and facilitating similar action around the world. Thank you very much, Archie. Uh, I, I did tremble a little at your promise of a bigger PowerPoint in this already too virtual world, but nonetheless, the point about bringing so many businesses and, and also civil society on board with this agenda and, and seeing them often ratchet up ambition is, is something to really celebrate. Uh, I'm going to turn to His Excellency Wang Di once again um, to ask when, when you're sitting in the climate and trade, climate or the trade negotiations as the least developed countries block, which other countries or which other negotiating blocks do you find share your enthusiasm for aligning climate and trade policies? And, and I guess when, I'm, when I ask about those countries, I'm looking not only for those that offer capacity building and financial assistance, but also those that have this shared vision for a 1.5 degree world that the LDC block has really pushed forward. Uh, thank you. In fact, in... Uh in my second uh, question, uh, one uh, area that uh, was very important in terms of the export diversification, if I can uh, talk about it now, is that uh, countries must take moral responsibilities and, and uh, there are these trade uh, regimes like the fair trade. I think uh, those sort of uh, preferential treatment must be accorded to uh, the LDCs. Now, in terms of uh, the uh, rather in uh, these blocks that we negotiate where there's alignment between climate and trade, I find that there is uh, very little, in fact, uh, very little. It is, if we do it, it's between ourselves, uh, the SIDS and the LDCs. Other than that, uh, I believe truly it is. Uh, I've often said that the climate agenda, UNFCCC, we don't do it at a regional level. It, it, is, it is a global. UNFCCC is global. 197 countries, we meet, and that is it. And 
these uh, targets that we agreed in terms of uh, uh, rather bringing that those down at uh, regional level that in fact does not exist and uh, in terms of support i believe you said not uh, capacity building uh, not to mention that uh, but uh, if you talk about that i believe uh, within unf triple c there are some constituted bodies and there are some capacity building available there are some agreements and other than that eu and some Scandin scandinavian countries do that but uh, i believe uh, in terms of that uh, aligning trade and climate i think we are in very early days and as somebody even said that uh, uh, in terms of looking at the ideal and uh, going just negotiating would not i would not in fact uh, give us the solutions i totally agree i think we have to find uh, new ways of working and covid gives us innovative ways of working uh, whether it is some kind of taxation system in areas where we believe uh, we need to remedy so those type of approaches would need to be taken otherwise i believe that uh, the landscape uh, is uh, pretty uh, grim thank you thank you thank you chair thank you your excellency i guess your answer gives me mixed feelings on the one hand at, at this relatively late stage in the climate science it is disappointing to know that we don't have more progress and more evidence on this on this challenging issue on the other hand, I know of a very strong research institute that's excited to work on climate and trade. So look out for a call. Uh, my next question is from, from Kevin Adams, uh, which he directs to Archie, but I'd also love to hear thoughts from Ambassador Blackman, uh, particularly about how climate action in the private sector and uh, particularly up those international supply chains can go beyond emissions reductions, as, as critical as that is but also start to focus on managing the climate risks in those supply chains and building resilience along them. Please, Archie, Ambassador Blackman. Thank you. And um, I'm very pleased actually that we've been asked this question, both because it shines a spotlight on adaptation and resilience, and also because it shines a spotlight on that need for uh, public action and private action. Um, on uh, the role of the private sector in this, I think I would point to the work by Mark Carney uh, and his three R's, uh, risk, um, reporting, and uh, actually, I always need to remind myself of them, reporting, risk management, and returns. Uh, and his work and the work of others um, in as part of our finance campaign to promote uh, initiatives such as the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, so that businesses around the world are, um, are more open about both the, the risks that they face and, um, and that that can then drive the right kind of incentives and investment decisions, which prioritize uh, green recovery, which prioritize um, climate resilience. Now, the reason why I was so pleased that uh, we got this focus on adaptation and resilience is because I'm very conscious that as uh, you know, the UK, we often talk about mitigation and we, we roll out our figures on how much we have uh, reduced our emissions and we often focus rightly because that is uh, you know what we are told by many many partners is the right focus of the absolute essential need for the world to reduce its emissions rapidly over the next 10 years but also climate impacts are happening they're happening now and in fact a year ago tomorrow uh, at the United Nations Climate Action Summit 
we, alongside Egypt, Malawi, Bangladesh, Netherlands, St. Lucia, we launched what we called the Call for Action on Adaptation and Resilience. And we got over 100 partners signed up to that. And that was about increasing the finance for adaptation. Uh, it was about increasing the attention given to adaptation and resilience. And also, there's an important element in that about actually increasing the broad range of partners and responsibilities that people feel towards that. Often, in the UNFCCC, the conversation on adaptation and resilience is very much focused on public finance. And there is a very, very good reason for that. A lot of adaptation and resilience action requires public finance and it requires more public finance. And we are pushing that. The UK, we have committed to 11.6 billion uh, pounds of climate finance over the next five years. And we aim for an equal balance between mitigation and adaptation. But we, so we know that more needs to be done on public, but actually so much of what will drive adaptation and resilience are decisions by private sector partners as well. Um, hopefully because it is in their interests as well as because it is in the interests of the communities and the places in which they operate. And there are a huge range of examples, but I'll stop there to give uh, Ambassador Blackman a chance to, to give his views as well. Yes, th thank you very much. And thank you, Archie, for, for those uh, well put together uh, comments and thoughts as well. Let, let me um, say, and, and I, I would go back to a point I would have made before, relative to the issue of the private sector and how um, do we get them looking in terms of climate action and uh, supply chain. You hit the nail on the head, RJ. Issues relative, there's an opportunity here. It's pregnant for, for, for the private sector. When you can get them thinking in terms of, okay, um, what are the opportunities, then you see a different approach. I, I always say in the WTO, and, and members sometimes they agree, that for a long time, the conversation relative to uh, the environment and trade has always been in the angle of the impact of trade on the environment. And, and the, the private sector steps off. However, when you say, or when you speak in terms of the impact of the environment on trade, you then get a different conversation and they then start to realize, okay, yes, actually, climate change and all the environmental issues kind of affect my bottom line. Therefore, my shareholders will be um, more interested, etc. So you have to meet them where they're at. But as I said, there's lots of opportunity. Uh, and particularly right now in the world where many of the businesses in the private sector have their supply chains, not in necessarily in one jurisdiction, but for competitive purposes, they have their businesses spread across the world. They therefore have a vested interest in ensuring um, that their businesses are in resilient jurisdictions. Uh, and also they have that level of adaptability um, that Archie spoke about. Now, I think uh, His Excellency also mentioned the fact um, that sometimes it's the SIDS and the LDCs championing the issue uh, going forward. But we have to realize that climate change is not only manifested in terms of hurricanes and cyclones. Um, lots of our countries in the world who are at the forefront of um, agricultural exports are being affected by climate change in the form of droughts. Now, if an economy's uh, GDP is affected by its inability to produce food to export, then therefore the private sector in those countries then also have to take note. So the point I'm saying is once you can explain and put it in a way, a very clear way, for the global private sector to understand that there are opportunities uh, in creating new um, value chains in a more sustainable way, 
then you will start to see the changes that we are all talking about. Thank you very much, Archie, and thank you very much, Ambassador Blackman. Uh, I think that the progress in particular, we've had finance as an overarching theme throughout this conversation and the progress being made towards uh, finding mechanisms for identifying, measuring, and ultimately reporting climate-related financial risks is absolutely pivotal to driving change throughout the entire private sector. You know, finance is the lubricant for the global economy. And I think that the, the work that the Bank of England is doing there, but, but a, a range of other financial supervisors and regulators around the world will be really pivotal in achieving some of the outcomes that you've talked about, Ambassador Blackman. Um, so, so that's a very welcome note to, to conclude the conversations on climate and trade. But I do want to broad, take this one moment to slightly broaden the conversation beyond climate, trade and development and touch on another environmental issue that's looming. We have, of course, a, another COP next year focused on biodiversity being held in Kunming. Uh, it's widely perceived in the scientific community that the biodiversity conversations are maybe 10 or 15 years behind some of the climate conversations. And I'd love to hear 30 seconds from each of you about any momentum that might be happening or an acknowledgement that it might not yet be in terms of biodiversity and, and trade policy and, and what we might look for in 2021. Uh, maybe start with you, uh, His Excellency Wang Di, if that's, if that's all right with you. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I, I did uh, mention in terms of the COPs being little right, compartmentalized. I believe that, uh, in fact, biodiversity loss, we have cited that as one of the uh, most serious impacts of climate change. So I, I believe that uh, somehow it has to be integrated. Uh, climate change uh, is uh, just more than, uh, let's say, the COP for uh, UNFCCC. It has to, and this integration has to occur, and uh, only then uh, we can we have solutions that will address. In fact, a lot of this adaptation work is also uh, targeted at uh, biodiversity loss. So I believe there, there is a clear case of connecting. Thank you very much. Jody, any, any pearls of wisdom? We're getting a terrible echo, so I might just turn to Ambassador Blackman and give you 30 seconds to sort out your mic, if that's okay. Yes, thank you. I, I think also, like um, His Excellency, there has to be um, an inter-dialogue between the two fields. Um, as you rightly said, there, there has been a lag hitherto between biodiversity conversation and, and players, as it were, uh, and the climate change. But I think, um, particularly now where we are in the world, if we can now have a framework that brings the two together in a very clear and concise way, um, we, we can start to see some movement in, in that direction. Thank you, Ambassador. Archie, some last, last gems from you, please. Uh, well, um, obviously, the connection between uh, the Biodiversity COP and the Climate COP, but I'd also add to that the third of the sister conventions, as they're referred to, which is on combating desertification. Um, I think they are clearly three parts of the same issue, and we do need to approach them in a holistic way and look for where there may be opportunities of co-benefits of action. We also, and I would say this as a negotiator, need to be careful about um, some of the, the clear delineations between the processes. 
Uh, but one of the things we're working on is we are work in, in contact with the other presidencies and incoming presidencies of those other conventions. There's a joint liaison group which looks at the links across the conventions. And I think actually taking my negotiator hat off now for a second and actually thinking of a member of the public, we have to see these as all part of the same picture and we have to be able to tell a coherent story. We're pushing for really ambitious global action at the Biodiversity COP. We're thoroughly engaged on combating desertification. And of course, we have the responsibility as incoming presidency for COP26 on climate. Um, we want to see them all being taken forward together. This week at the, uh, the UN General Assembly, there'll be a big moment on biodiversity, but there'll also be a big moment on climate. And we need to show how action on one is supportive of action on the other. Thank you, Archie. I'm going to give Jody 30 seconds and then I'm going to wrap up with some very exciting news from the climate forums just uh, as a, to, to whet your appetites and keep you on the line for an extra minute and a half. Jody, please. Thank you so much. Um, just to, to quickly um, wrap up, um, it's just to say that, of course, COVID-19 has just demonstrated to us all the importance of biodiversity, you know, this wildlife, this, this trade in kind of um, different types of products that are coming from deforested areas and so on. So I think the, the point by Honourable um, Wang Dai is um, extremely pertinent. And I think Archie's already mentioned that there's a lot of work going on. You know, I think COVID is, is as Ambassador Blackman was saying in the introduction, it's changed our ways of working. You know, it's changing the way that we're, we're viewing this relationship between trade and the environment. Um, it's providing us an opportunity to, to build back better. So, you know, there's some good opportunities that have arisen uh, for, for the next year's um, conference on biodiversity as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jody. And I, I think there seems to be news circulating based on something that just popped up on my screen to say that China, unfortunately, we have no representatives from China on this particular webinar, but at the UN General Assembly, China, China has just announced that it will enhance its NDC, striving to achieve a CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and carbon neutrality before 2060. So I suggest that after this webinar, you rush over and read the headlines from the UN General Assembly, because it looks like there's some exciting things happening there from the world's largest trading nation uh, with huge impl implications for the climate. Thank you to everyone who's joined us today in this webinar. It's been a very far ranging and, and sophisticated discussion around two very complicated and two closely related policy, policy arenas. Warm thanks to His Excellencies, the Honourable Mr. Wang Di and His Excellency, the Ambassador Blackman. Thank you so much, Archie and Jody as well for joining us. Your collective expertise, both in the, the research arena and in the actual weeds of the negotiations have really added a, a depth to this discussion that we very rarely get it in these virtual seminars. So we hugely appreciate your time and we look forward to supporting you all in any way we can to ensure a successful COP26 uh, that delivers a, a climate safe future for, for us all. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.